This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. Home buying decisions should be long-term decisions. They should be where do I want to live for the next at least five to seven years, if not 10, 15, 20, 30 years? Where do I want to live and raise my family? This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're going to do two things. First, we'll be answering another question with my really smart friend, Megan Rebuse, and that question today is, should I wait to buy a house? Hmm. Second, we are back with our net worth win segment. This quarter, we're going to be featuring Andrea Wallace from Arizona, who grew her family's net worth to over $900,000 by age 28. (laughs) That's bonkers. She's going to share how she hit this near millionaire milestone mark so early in her life and how that milestone is shaping her future family money moves. All right, let's jump into today's show. With rising interest rates and home prices rising over the past few years, people are asking, should I wait to buy a house? Well, big questions like this one are always better with really smart friends. So I thought I'd answer this one with my friend, Megan Rebuse. Once again, Megan, also known as the Family Finance Mom, is the host of the popular Finance Explained podcast. She's also a former financial analyst, a mom of three, and also taking advantage of a lot of things locally in her community, it sounds like, and a regular guest expert on the Marriage, Kids, and Money community podcast here that we're doing here. Welcome back to the show, Megan. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good to talk with you again and talk about these big questions. This one's going to be a fun one. Let's talk to the first time home buyers out there, Megan. Do you think they should wait to buy a home? So whenever I get asked this question, whether it's a first time home buyer, a repeat home buyer, I kind of like to reframe it in terms of you know, really what you're asking is, do I think home prices are going to go down? Am I going to lose money on a house? Can I still build wealth by owning a home? And big picture, let's talk about why homeownership builds wealth. It's because what else do most people do on a consistent month in, month out basis for decades at a time? That is why homeownership is wealth creating. That's one of the reasons. One is that people are consistently month in, month out, making contributions towards paying down their mortgage, which is building equity in their home for a long period of time. So it's basically buy and hold for a long period of time. The other piece of it is that you're using debt or leverage. So you put up a little bit of a down payment, you get to buy the rest by borrowing it. And that also then creates kind of an amplification of wealth creation. So the combination of using debt and also having this long holding period is what creates wealth through home ownership. So if we take that as kind of the basis for all these questions and then come back to your first question is, should first time home buyers be waiting to buy a home right now? Well, the question to ask isn't, 
Do I think home prices are going to fall over the next year or the next two years? Which I'll be honest, I, I don't. And I'll come back to that in a second. But where are home prices today relative to where you think they're going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now? Home buying decisions should be long-term decisions. They should be, where do I want to live for the next, you know, at least five to seven years, if not 10, 15, 20, 30 years, where do I want to live and raise my family? Those are the types of questions you should be thinking of. And I realize as a first-time home buyer, like maybe you're not planning to be in that home for 25 or 30 years. But honestly, if you aren't committed to being somewhere for, I would say, a good five to seven years, homeownership might not be the right answer for you, not only like right now, but ever. You know, if that's your time horizon, that's usually not a good time horizon for buying a home. I think that's a really good point. I think I found myself in that situation with my first home. I bought because I was supposed to, or, you know, quote unquote, supposed to feel like you're supposed to, because everybody's, you know, barking at you in the media or even your family or whatever saying, hey, you should buy a house. You're wasting money on rent. But if you're not going to be there long term, renting has a lot of great options to it. Let's talk about, you know, these people who are are saving up and say, okay, yeah, yeah, Megan, I think I'm going to be there at least five years, maybe 10, maybe 25, like you're saying. Let's talk down payment. I've seen some statistics from the National Association of Realtors that the average home down payment for first-time homebuyers is around 6%, 7%, and then the average for repeat homebuyers is around 17%. You hear these numbers of you need at least 20%. What's the reality for people? I mean, where should they start, I guess? So there's a couple of different things at play that's going to impact those statistics. One is there are a huge number of sort of federally sponsored home ownership programs, basically to encourage home ownership that are available to first-time home buyers that allows them access to different mortgages than say a repeat home buyer is going to have access to, or then like if you're buying a vacation home or something like that. And so that's going to skew those down payment numbers towards the lower end. In some cases you can make as little as, you know, a two or 3% down payment and qualify for some of those federal programs. So that's, you know, the first thing. The second thing is again, time, right? First-time homebuyers typically are younger. They haven't had as much time to save up. And so they are likely going to have smaller down payments than older, more established families who've been saving for longer. And that's also why some of those mortgage programs are available to them. And then the third thing is that a repeat homebuyer has had the benefit of wealth creation through homeownership already. And they're also tax incentivized to roll over any gains they got in their first home into their second home. So if they owned a home for a while, they had some appreciation in the value of the home or they paid off some of that mortgage and they're coming away with like a big check from the sale of their home, they're incentivized from both a tax perspective as well as just from lowering their you know, ongoing cost of living run rate by having a lower mortgage payment by rolling over that cash into their new home. So that's going to contribute to their ability to have larger down payments as well. Now, a couple things for first-time homebuyers to be aware of. Typically, if you are putting a lower down payment towards your home, you're likely going to have a higher mortgage rate. You may also have to pay something known as PMI, which is private mortgage insurance, which is basically ensuring the mortgage provider 
against your risk of default. So that's going to increase your monthly payment as well. And in some cases, you may actually have to take out a second mortgage at a much higher rate to kind of make up the difference to get to kind of that 20% down payment threshold. So just be aware that if you have less of a down payment, the overall cost of borrowing, your financing costs, things like that, your interest rates may be higher. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, some things, as you mentioned, that are driving that price a lot higher are mortgage rates. Talk to us about where you think mortgage rates are going to go as the year progresses. I know the person who maybe saw the title of this podcast, they're thinking, well, could they go down and then maybe I'll buy it and then the home prices will be down. I'll buy it at the perfect time. I guess, talk about mortgage rates this year. What do you think? You know, we've seen mortgage rates kind of do a 180 over the course of the last, I don't know if you want to call it three or four years. One of the reasons we saw home prices appreciate so much kind of through the pandemic period was because mortgage rates reached so low. They literally hit historic all-time lows. People locked in mortgage rates as low as like high twos, low threes, and they locked into those for the next 30 years. That enabled people to pay more for a home and end up with the same mortgage payment than they would have you know, a year or two before or now with a lower price home. And so mortgage rates have risen because the Fed overall is raising interest rates in order to combat inflation. Inflation is basically too many dollars in the economy chasing too few goods. And so the Fed, through its actions by raising interest rates, is trying to cool things off, right? They're making it more expensive to go out and borrow. So then people have fewer dollars to go out and chase those goods with and kind of cool off that price inflation. Slow home price appreciation, which we're starting to see. We're not seeing home prices decline. Um, and I'll talk about why that is in a second. But you're definitely, you know, instead of seeing that 20% annual price appreciation that we saw like in 2020, you know, it's going to be more like low single digits, which has been the norm historically. So where are mortgage rates going to go this year? They reached as high as nearly 7% back in December. They've come down a little bit. The Fed is expected to continue to increase interest rates through 2023. However, longer term rates, which is kind of what informs mortgages, are holding fairly steady. So I think kind of where they're at now, which is like the lower sixes, is probably where they're going to hang out. There is the potential, should we enter into an official recession, should the Fed start to lower rates over the next, call it 12 to 18 months, we could start to see those come back down again. But I'm not sure that we're going to see kind of those high two, low 3% mortgage rates maybe ever again in our lifetimes. Although they seem high right now, this is about <laughs> this is about when I got my first house. I think it was a five and a half percent, six percent, something like that in two thousand four, two thousand five. Historically, I mean, these are not that high, right? I mean, his, historically, this is normal, and and I always like to tell people like, when in doubt, zoom out. Like your real people are very focused on kind of what interest rates have done in the last six to twelve months. If you zoom out and look at mortgage rates over a long period of time, like you know. When you get off the show today, go ask your parents what they paid for a mortgage rate. Some of our parents paid mortgage rates that looked more like current day credit card rates. So to them, six to six and a half percent actually probably sounds pretty good. 
Yeah, absolutely. And another reason to zoom out too, I mean, we talk about the cost of homes and right now maybe there's some news, oh, they're they're going down a little bit. But I mean, if you zoom out in general, just home prices rising in general, I mean, shouldn't that give people comfort in looking that saying, this is a good long-term investment depending on where I live? Or is home ownership an investment at all? I don't know. What do you think? So I guess maybe there's a couple questions mixed in there and we've kind of talked around this a little bit, but one of the questions I keep getting a lot is like, our home price is going to fall again. And I think the reason people get worried about that is because aside from the pandemic, the most recent recession that kind of lives in everybody's memory is 2008 or the great recession. And during that period, home prices declined, you know, depending on where you were, 10 to 20% over the series of a couple of years. But what is important to remember about that period of time is that it was a home price asset bubble that pushed us into the recession. And so that was, you know, if you think about like the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s, the bubble there, right, was tech stocks and the stock market. And so that's where we saw asset price deflation during that period. So in the Great Recession, the asset bubble was housing. And so that's why we saw price declines there. What has happened since is we've actually seen a significant level of under construction relative to what is demanded relative to things like population growth and household formation growth. And so we've ended up in a period where we actually have kind of big picture a housing shortage. That's some also of why we saw home prices accelerate in recent years with lower interest rates. It's why we're seeing rents increase so much as well, just because in general, there's not enough housing to meet kind of the demand. And so that to me kind of fundamentally underpins home prices. So even though higher mortgage rates are slowing transactions, you see fewer people listing their homes as well. So there's still more buyers out there than there are sellers. And in order to see kind of home prices decline, you'd have to see a lot of forced selling, the number of sellers exceeding buyers. And we're just not seeing that. And I don't expect to see that absent, like if we end up in a recession that is severe, prolonged, ends up with significant increases in unemployment, which is not really what anybody is predicting right now, just because the labor market is so strong. I really don't anticipate seeing something like that 2008 scenario happen again. So I don't know if that answers all those questions, but hopefully it kind of frames what the housing market looks like right now. And at least in my opinion, why I don't, like if you're sitting there waiting for home prices to fall by 20%, you're not gonna be buying a home anytime soon, I guess is kind of the short version. Absolutely. And I mean, to your point originally, this is a long-term play. I mean, you're wanting to be somewhere for a long period of time. If this becomes a short-term purchase, there ends up being a lot of costs associated with the buying and selling, correct? Correct. So, you know, that that is another reason why I say that this is like, if you don't have that five to seven years. So on average, home prices have increased kind of call it low to mid single digits on an annual basis historically. So, you know, somewhere around four to 6% a year. You're going to pay north of that just in fees associated with your closing costs, with, you know, what you're paying to your realtor. And so it's going to take a couple years of normal home price appreciation just to recoup some of those costs. 
And that's part of it. And then also there's, you know, like with any investment, there can be volatility. There is no, you know, because we've all experienced 2008, there's no guarantee that there aren't going to be some periods of time where growth is slower or growth might decline a little bit. And so it's really like with all investments, the longer your time horizon, the more certain you can kind of be about those annual return targets. And so that's kind of how all that plays together. Yeah. In order for people to be financially prepared for this, we've talked about the home down payment preparation. We've talked about closing costs. What other real costs can first-time home buyers expect from this home ownership life that they're about to jump into that they might not see as renters? Sure. So a couple things. One is that I always warn people, like, don't spend every single dime you have on your down payment and your closing costs and then end up in a situation where you're cash poor when you own a home because you're likely to incur a lot more expenses in terms of total cost of home ownership than you did renting. Now, if your hot water heater breaks in the middle of the night, you don't call your landlord, you have to come up with the money to replace that. Yes, you're going to have home inspections and things like that. Although in recent years, people were waiving those in kind of the heat of the market. But depending on the age of the home that you're buying, you know, you're going to have significant maintenance costs on an annual basis. And so making sure that you're prepared for that, that you're putting sinking funds aside to pay for things like that, you know, consider things like how old are the appliances in your home? What is the useful life of those appliances and how soon might you need to replace them? How old is the roof on your home? And might you need to replace those? Make sure you understand like the utilities in your house. Many, I know kind of depending on where you live, it's common that utilities might be included with your rent. When you own a home, they're not included in your mortgage. And so making sure you understand like, okay, what is my heat source? What is the cost implications of that? Like, I don't know what it's like in Michigan right now, but in Connecticut, heating prices right now are crazy just in terms of like the year over year increase. So that can all have a big impact kind of on what you might think your monthly cost of shelter is or what you're used to as a renter to once you become a buyer. Some other things are things like, you know, landscaping. Do you own a lawnmower? Or if you don't own a lawnmower, are you going to pay someone to come do that for you? Are you going to pay someone to come do snow removal? Or do you need to go buy a snow blower? There's, you know, there's lots of additional costs associated with home ownership beyond just like what you might be used to from writing your monthly rent check. I think that's such a good point. And it's, <laughs> as a, how long have I been a homeowner now? Probably almost 20 years. It's a lot more than I originally bargained for when I was renting and thinking, okay, this is a, this is a smart move financially. I'm glad that I've done it long term, but I was definitely not prepared for all that goes into it. But it's definitely paid off for our wealth building journey as a family. It's a little bit less than half of our net worth, essentially, but it's paid off quite a bit. And, and we're using it as an asset to help us in the future, too. Maybe it's something that we decide to sell when we're older, downsize. They can really provide a lot of options. So I think in short, we're encouraging home ownership as a long-term investment, but be cautious of the of the general costs that go into it and go into it like it's the biggest purchase you'll ever make in your life because it, it probably, probably is. is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Well, Megan, thank you so much for being here and helping us with this big question once again. So what's new with the family finance mom world? What's going on? 
Sure. So for those of you who've heard me on here before, you know, last year I ran an investing workshop series. It's basically like once a month for six months, pick a topic, host a live workshop on it, but you can also sign up and catch all those replays at any time. So that is available. This year, I'm also running an economic workshop series. So each month, there is a specific economics topic that is covered in a live workshop, but is also available in replays to anybody who signs up after the fact. The first topic we just had last week was what is a recession, given all of the headlines we're seeing these days, explaining kind of what happens, what has happened historically, why people are saying that right now. And then going forward, each month we'll kind of delve into a specific topic on economics. Next month is kind of Econ 101, understanding like what economics is, how people kind of assess cause and effect in the economy. And the goal of kind of both of these, right, is to improve your financial literacy so that you ultimately are empowered to make better decisions for you and your family. So you can find both of those at familyfinancemom.com in the workshop section. Excellent. Yeah. And if you guys are on Instagram, follow Megan there as well. Great bite-sized information that kind of draws you in and helps you become educated on these really big topics so that you can make some really smart decisions. And if you're a podcast fan, big fan of Finance Explained as well, that Megan hosts as well. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me again, Andy. I appreciate it. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan 
above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. marriagekidsandmoney.com slash tello. I love talking about increasing your net worth. This is our barometer for wealth building success. Today, we're going to speak with an investor who has grown her net worth to over $900,000 by age 28. Andrea Wallace is our guest today. Andrea lives with her husband, Tyler, and her two boys in Arizona. And when she's not building her family's wealth, she loves board game nights with friends, escape rooms, and staring blankly at her Netflix account. Welcome to the show, Andrea. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here and helping other families win like you have. So looking back, let's talk about this. What was your motivation for building the wealth that you have so far? So... I mean, I've always just really liked money. I wasn't quite a normal child in the sense that I used to do things like, like I would hide my money around my house or around my room. And so I would get like, you know, like $10 and I'd just like tuck it somewhere like in a book or a little cubby when I was ready to move to my sister's room when she went off to college. I actually went through my room and and found like $200 and mostly ones just kind of like scattered throughout my room. So I mean, I, I just, I really liked money, and I guess my answer to that question would just be that I, I don't know that I really needed motivation. It was it was always just kind of like a a fun thing for me. And I think, I mean, I think a lot of that had to do with, like, my dad used to always kind of approach money as not like, can we do this? But more so, how can we do this? And so I think I really took that mindset away and, you know, just kind of rolled from there. So Andrea, when did it go from hiding money in the books to actually putting it somewhere else that helped you to build wealth? So I then, you know, shortly after that started, you know, my parents opened a a bank account for me. And by the time I had graduated from high school, I had amassed a small sum, quite large for for a teenager, but I I had like $10,000. And so as a junior in college, I actually decided that it might be a good idea to buy a house at age 19 with zero income as a full-time student and instead rent out two rooms to cover the mortgage. My parents, you know, I was fortunate enough to have parents who helped me through college and they kind of agreed and they they ended up having to co-sign for me because like I said, I had no income, so no bank would lend me money. But then, you know, I stopped hiding money in my in my cubbies. But then, yeah, then it grew into real estate and went from there. At age 19, you buy a house and you house hack it essentially with some friends. They pay the mortgage. I love your story about hiding the money in the book. I think that's pretty much how people become wealthy is just hiding the money somewhere (laughs) in in some sort of savings (laughs) account, asset or investment account. That's really how this all works, everybody. But you started hiding it in assets. So after that first house, what else did you do to build your wealth? We, we knew it was like a great rental property. We kind of bought it with that intent. And so we, since we didn't have a mortgage, it was really easy for us to build up a new down payment. And so we built up a new down payment by the time we were, you know, starting to look at, looking at start a family four years after we bought our first property, we saved up a down payment for a new property and then kept our other one as a rental. And so that's how we kind of got into the rental game too. 
And then we did the same thing recently. <laughs> so you now have three houses, is that right? So you have the one that you bought when you were 19, and then you bought another one with your then husband, and now you are buying one, or you currently have a third, is that right? We just bought one almost exactly a year ago and doing the same approach. And this time we actually weren't looking at, we weren't even like considering buying because I was just convinced that, you know, the best strategy was to stay in our house for as long as we could and not like upgrade our lifestyle at all. And so that was the path I was trying to go. But then, you know, with the housing market where it was and interest rates so low, I, I was just kind of looking and then realized that the rent we could get on our second property would cover, you know, basically my, what I wanted for my next home for the mortgage. And so ended up just kind of out of nowhere being like, okay, this makes sense. So now how can we do it? You know, it was, it was, again, it wasn't the, can we do it? It was, how can we make it work and do it? And so we ended up refinancing our first property to get most of the down payment. We sold our second car because my husband was working from home. We only needed one car. And then we also pulled a little bit from our HSA account. Then we're able to buy our next property. So can you break down your net worth for us? So we did actually have our first experience with market volatility. We are currently at 900000 now. And that is due to the, the market in Phoenix has, has taken a pretty big hit. And yeah, a lot, of our, a lot of our net worth was in our real estate. I think at the time we had like 900,000 in equity and now we're down to like 750,000 in equity. And then our stocks were, you know, somewhere around 200,000 or something like that and they're now like 160. So, we're we're closer to 900,000 right now, but I think at the peak we were like 1.1 million. I think I've definitely felt that same hit on my stock portfolio too. I think I'm down about $100,000, 80 to $100,000 from the peak last year. So we're all feeling that. So, But I'm sure based on uh, the way markets have gone in the past, we'll be back up into positive territory in the near future. So talk to me about, you've got these rental properties and it sounds like you've got maybe about $200,000 in mortgages. And these mortgages are in the what, two to 3% range? Did you lock all these in before all these big mortgage interest rate hikes? Yes, I think our biggest mortgage interest rate right now is 3.25. And that's an investment property as well. So that's, you know, higher than, than our primary, our, our primary residence is 2.6% interest rate. So yeah, so we locked in those low interest rates. But it's kind of funny, you say, we have like 200,000 in mortgages. We have like a million dollars in debt in mortgages. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I did the math way wrong then. So tell me about that. So outside of the mortgages, the million dollars in mortgages, do you have other debt outside of that? So we do actually have a small car loan still. And that's solely due to the fact that, again, it's like a 3% interest rate. And so I've just been putting off, you know, I mean, I just feel like logically, I understand that that the money will probably do better in the stock market. So I've just been making the minimum payments on that car loan and just letting that sit. But that's like like fire 101 is no consumer debt. So, <laughs> so I, I battle myself with it all the time. Let's recap then so people understand your assets are the homes and your investments then. So I guess what is the value of the homes then, I guess, overall? I mean, so Phoenix is a pretty, you know, decent, decent market. And so our first property is somewhere around three, 340 is probably like, I mean, I, I usually use the, I usually use the Zillow 
estimates, which isn't super accurate, but it's super easy. So Zillow estimates that our condo, so our first property, is valued around 340 And then our second property was a small family home, which is valued around, it's like 590000 right now. And then our current property was, or is like around 780000 so you've got a lot of high equity in a lot of these properties, and then that's where the the larger mortgage balance comes in, and then we get to nine hundred. Okay, I just want to help everybody out with the math problem of net worth, right? You got your assets minus your liabilities gets your net worth. So that's where you guys are today, which is incredible in your late twenties to be close to a million bucks or darn near almost there. So talk to me about your financial dreams going forward. You guys have this great portfolio. You and your husband are there with your kids. What are your dreams and goals for the future? Now you guys have. So so many years ahead of you. So I think, you know, we, we recently kind of hit a, a point where it's, it's a lot about family right now. And so we've kind of like, I've always been very money minded. And so I've kind of had to shift that mindset of like, okay, it's okay if we eat out, you know, four times a week, because it's easier, it reduces stress, we can spend more time with kids. I think before our max was like once a week. So just switching to our, our mindset to, I, th- I think you've heard of it, but maybe your audience might not know the term slow fi, which is kind of just the concept that you make lifestyle shifts to, to make your life where you want it to be before you actually reach retirement. So that's kind of my mindset right now is, you know, we've already reached our coast by number. And so anything that we save now is just getting us to an earlier retirement. So just switching that mindset to now is just all about spending time with family. And, you know, we're still, we're still planning on retiring before 40, but our original goal was to retire by 35. And I think I'm kind of, like letting myself push it back a little bit to to kind of make sure the time that we have with our kids while they're young is quality time. A lot of it, when we talk about fire and early retirement, has a lot to do with enjoying the work that you do. So does your husband enjoy what he does? Do you enjoy what you do? So my husband is a software developer and he, you know, during COVID had a switch to working full-time remote and then switched positions recently to another full-time remote position. So he's full-time remote, which he loves and is really good for our family because, you know, he's he's around a lot more. And so our boys get to see him every day, you know, throughout the day. And so, so yeah, I think he's excited to get to, to fire because he wants the option to not work, but he does enjoy what he's doing right now. And then I've been mostly a stay-at-home mom for the past four years, but I recently have been getting a little bit more time with the kids getting a little older. And I picked up a side gig doing a little teaching. I'm teaching graphic design at Arizona State University. So the university here in Arizona, one of them. And that's been really good for me because that gives me a little bit extra, you know, a a little bit extra sense of accomplishment than, okay, the kids are fed today. (laughs) I think that's great. You know, for somebody that's listening right now and they have sort of that savers mindset, I call it, you know, that you grew up with. You're like, hey, I like money. I like having it. I like keeping it. Talk to that person about if you get to this point where you've hit Coast Fire, you've got this near million dollar status in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, give them some advice about 
you know, stepping off the gas a little bit. What's the first step you're going to take to kind of allow yourself to enjoy more of that money that you feel comfortable putting inside the book, but you want to enjoy it? What's the first step you're going to take? Maybe you can help people who are in a similar position. So, I mean, for us, it's been a lot of just allowing ourselves, you know, I've always been really against like subscription-based things. And so like the idea of a gym membership was like, was really hard for me. I'm like, okay, we could buy some dumbbells. We could go on runs. You know, we can do this for free ourselves. So the idea of a gym membership was always really hard for me, but we found a gym that has childcare and I was like, okay, well, that's like a good investment, you know? So just allowing myself to buy into some of those things that just make life a little easier. And I think that's, that's kind of, that, that would be the advice I would give to people is just to figure out what makes your life easier and more enjoyable. If you're just like, think about what you're feeling like your life is lacking. So is that, are you lacking time? Are you, you know, feeling deprivation because you've been saving so much and, and maybe you need to enjoy things a little bit more? Are you feeling reclusive and you need to, you know, go travel and visit some family and just figuring out those areas that you really think that you could benefit from and just allowing yourself to to spend a little bit more. And I think you'll be pretty surprised at how little those kind of things can really make an impact on your, your overlying numbers. I think that's great, Andrea. I think, you know, looking into what those fears are, looking into what those things that are impacting you the most, and then, you know, slowly feeding those and feeling, wow, okay, that made a big difference, even though it might be a small amount of money. I think this is great advice. Andrea, I understand you have some resources and you're willing to help people on their journey too. So where can people connect with you and learn more from you? I have a blog that you can feel free to reach out to me at. It's makingmoneynerds.com. So you can go ahead and contact me through that. Makingmoneynerds.com. That's a website I need to go to because I definitely fall into that category as well. Andrea, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Of course, no problem. Thank you for having me. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Now, before we go for the day, I wanted to let you all know, if you've just been listening to the podcast for a while, we also have these interviews, these great ones that I shared today on YouTube, on video. Yeah, you should check out my YouTube channel. We have over 8,000 subscribers on there now, and I'm shooting for the goal of 10,000 subscribers this year. So, man, if you want to check them out, that'd be really cool. Each Wednesday, I share a new video where I'm talking about family financial independence. And then on Thursdays, I share these awesome interviews that you're seeing or that you're hearing. Uh, That was a Freudian slip. Hearing right now instead of seeing, you could be seeing them on the YouTube channel. So if you've always wondered kind of like what these guests look like or, you know, a little bit more details about them, you could just simply go to youtube.com slash marriage kids and money or go to YouTube and just type in marriage kids and money and support your buddy by hitting that red subscribe button and help me hit my goal of 10K subscribers this year. I would really appreciate your support. It's a free thing you could do in about five seconds and it would make me smile ear to ear. Thank you very much for considering supporting this small family business. YouTube.com slash marriage, kids, and money. I hope to see you there. 
In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Laura Ingalls Wilder. Home is the nicest word there is. Best of luck in securing your home, your houses, or investment properties, my friends. Carpe diem. 